Hey everybody, welcome to this week's Q&As. It is Thursday morning, so I'm shooting a little earlier than usual. Hopefully everybody had enough time to get their questions in, but if not, just re-ask for next week. But anyway, let's jump in and see what we got. First up, over on Floatplane, the importer just picked up a flat panel TV to sit next to their CRT so that they could use their PS3, PSP, Wii, and GameCube games on either monitor, depending on what they feel like. And they were looking for a safe way to connect both at the same time. And there's a few answers to this. First, if your CRT is an RGB monitor, it most likely has BNC inputs and outputs. And if that's the case, just pick up some RCA connectors on both, put the component video into the RGB monitor, send the out to the flat panel or scaler going into the flat panel, depending on your needs and, uh, and what you'd like to do with the signal. And that should be it. The RGB monitor would not have to be on to pass the signal, so you should be good for both of those. But assuming you're using a consumer-grade CRT or one of the RGB monitors with only one set of inputs, you're going to want some kind of powered distribution on the video lines. And the one that's my favorite by far is the G-Comp switch, because that's an automatic switch that's 8 in, 2 out, you can safely use both at the same time, and it supports component and composite video. And on top of all of that stuff, it's designed specifically for video game signals. So switches that work with video signals have to adhere to a, a pretty strict standard, and most of them, most of the higher end ones do a great job, but you can run into issues with video game signals that were all over the place and they really had a much less strict set of standards to adhere to. So you might run into issues, you know, there might be some kind of problems. So if you just want the best, that's the one to get. However, they're expensive. And, you know, it's it, that's not an insult. It's just like Acura versus Honda, right? Some people just want to get it done. Some people want the extra luxury. And there's no wrong answer to that. It's what fits your setup best. So if you're on a budget or if you're in a situation where you wanted to, to switch a lot more than eight, you could look into Extron cross points, which go from, I think, eight to 32 inputs and outputs. So that would be a pretty cool solution, but they're, they're big devices. You're going to need to buy a bunch of BNC cables and stuff like that, but that would totally work. You could even try to buy one of the smaller ones that, that maybe would support multiple outputs on that. And because you're using component video, not RGB SCART, all you would need is those BNC connectors, not SCART to BNC adapters, which are far more expensive. You could also just go down the line and look for any kind of video distribution amp or component video switch that's powered that specifically says it's meant to drive two devices at once. I don't want to go to the Y cable conversation again because I, I tend to do that a couple of times a month, but basically you can't really use a y, uh, a y split signal to split video signals because you're draw or you're putting load on twice or twice the load on the single device. Sorry, I'm not feeling so well today. So this is going to be a rough one to get through. <laughs> My apologies to anybody listening. But if you use a Y circuit to split a video signal, you're putting double the load on the same device, which could kill your consoles. It, and at the very least, it's definitely not good for it. It'll shorten the lifespan. So it's not recommended. Putting a Y circuit on an audio cable is totally safe from a safety point of view. You could possibly have some audio interference or stuff like that, but it's not that big a deal. So you're going to just need some kind of powered splitter solution that could handle it. And there's a whole bunch of stuff out there that used to be really high-end expensive equipment 20 years ago that you could get on eBay very cheap nowadays. But 
I would just kind of take a step back and look at the total uh, setup and what your goal is. And if it's a gaming focused setup and you're probably going to add another device or two, I would grab the G-Comp switch. If you don't know what your setup's going to be like, or if you just want to quickly get this done to split it between two, grab the cheapest thing you could find on eBay. That's a powered switch, a switch or splitter or distribution amp or anything that's designed to power more than one device at the same time. Uh, or you could also look into something like uh, Xtron Crosspoint if you have a ton of devices you eventually want to connect. But I would kind of just take a step back and figure out your budget and your end goal. And if you want a short-term solution or if you just want to do the long-term solution now. But good question. Now over on Patreon, Richard Webster just wanted to follow up about the conversation last week about using a sync stripper through an Extron Crosspoint. I'm not going to rehash the whole thing. Please go back and listen to last week's if you're interested. But Richard just wanted to confirm that, yes, the reason they wanted to use a sync stripper was because of using a sync on Luma cable on the SCART side. So that's the perfect scenario for it. You kind of have to use it. So uh, hopefully my, my answer to you last week then fell into place and I made the right assumptions. But I just wanted to clarify that for anybody listening who also has an Extron Crosspoint that wants to do the same type of stuff. Um, So if anybody's interested, the timestamps last week should clarify which one's which. But thanks for following up, Richard. Tyler Fox wants to know if there's any place they could buy a Wii Duel. They missed the last large run of production from Dan, Black Dog Tech, and they wanted to pair it with the RetroTink 5X to make the Wii look even better. So I have bad news and good news. The bad news is I don't know of anybody doing a large run of production, and I don't know if that could really be done because of the global part shortage. Now, there might be people making small hand-built runs of production, but you're going to have to hunt those down yourself. However, I'm not sure if it's really worth the effort. And I mean that respectfully, and that's all because of the RetroTINK 5X. Now, if you didn't own one of those and you were already looking to take the HDMI out of the Wii Duel and plug it into a display, that's a totally different story. But the fact that you already own a RetroTINK 5X, or at least it seems that way in your comment, then I think all you would really need for an excellent experience is good shielded component video cables. Because the experts listening might disagree, and I I hope they speak up if they do, because I kind of rely on the community for help with this stuff, especially Wii and GameCube. I'm always tripped up with those. But I think, it's my opinion, that if you're using an unshielded, you know, dollar bin component video cable on a Wii into the RetroTank 5X, you would get a bigger performance upgrade going to just nice HD RetroVision shielded cables than you would going to a GC dual mod for that. Now, in my testing, I did see a little bit clearer and sharper image from a Wii dual modded uh, Wii, even through the component video output. However, it's it wasn't giant. It wasn't something that you know I could walk by and immediately tell, like, oh, that's a Wii dual modded Wii. And with all of the features the RetroTank 5X has to offer, I think that if you scale it however you want it on your TV, you might be able to just get an amazing picture as is. So if you have Nintendo branded component video cables, I guess some of the Monster brand, I've tested some of those and they seemed fine, then you should be okay. If not, if you have any other brand, especially ones that look shielded, I I can't even tell you how many times I've bought cables that look shielded, had some issues, cut them open, and it was just a whole bunch of foam with no shielding on it. So it If you're having any kind of issues and you're not using a known good brand, I would strongly recommend getting the HD RetroVision ones, which I'll link here just to make it easier. But 
those are very well shielded. They perform awesome, and that's a great pairing with the Wii and the Retro Tank 5X. I would also look into some of the mods, soft mods that are available uh, that tweak some of the 480p output. I know, I think we'd done a write-up on Retro RGB about that a bunch of years ago. I know Extremes had worked on that as well, so... I really think you could have an excellent experience now with a, you know, either a stock Wii with the component video cables or a soft modded Wii with standard component video cables if you're using a really good scaler. Um, but, you know, once a new thing comes out, who knows what that's going to be? Maybe a couple of years from now, after the part shortage is over and people take another look at the Wii, maybe we'll get something that could scale directly on the Wii digitally and the HDMI output would be 1080p or who knows, 4K if it's five or 10 years from now or something like that. So the advice I'm giving now is relevant today and who knows what's going to come out tomorrow. But I just wanted to not just answer your question, but kind of explain why for anybody else listening or wondering why the answer was the way I said. But as always, if I get something wrong, please let me know. I'll I'll try my best to address it and correct it. And I always love learning new things, but I I think I got that one right. Juno wanted to know if I had any options for capturing footage from DS or 3DS consoles. And first, hopefully I'm pronouncing your name right. I'm terrible at pronunciations. I try real hard, but I often get it wrong, so my apologies if I did. However, to answer your question, there's a few options out there, but we're missing a few. So a couple of years ago, there were kits that you could buy that you could install in either that output USB so you could play on the handheld and capture footage on your PC, which is an awesome solution for streamers or just capture. However, they don't make those kits anymore, and I think they were a bit laggy, so you wouldn't want to just game on your PC, but it would have been a perfect solution for capturing. You could try to hunt down one of those Nitro DS kits, Uh, check out the video from Macho Nacho, actually check out the post on Retro RGB from that, because it links to Tito's video, as well as some of the, the research I had done. And they're great, but they're expensive and they're rare, and they vary wildly in prices. I've seen them from 600 I think I've seen them as low as 300 and as high as two grand or something like that. And I don't think I've ever actually seen one for the 3DS. Um, They have to be out there, but I think that would be harder to find. But you could try to find one of those, and that would be a perfectly good solution. The other solution you could do for DS is the Wii U. But that is a bit laggy, and I'm not sure if that's what you're looking for. If you were to make sure to connect your Wii U to a low-lag um, like gaming monitor or a CRT, if you wanted to do that, then it would be a very good solution, and it would be a lot more lag than original consoles, but probably not enough to make your experience terrible, and you could just stream it that way. Although I don't know how that would work, because you might only be streaming one of the two at a time or something like that. You'd have to mess with the settings. It's been a long time since I played around with my Wii U. Uh, And then from there, software emulation could probably be the easiest. I think there's decent emulation for both. You could just capture the screens for streaming and capturing, and that might work, but that might not be what you're looking for either. Now, the perfect solution would be an HDMI kit that installs in either of those. And while there is the composite out mod, the one that Tito from Macho Nacho just highlighted a while back, 
it might not be the quality you're looking for. Now, that through like a RetroTINK 5X would certainly be good, but you're right in that you could only do one screen at a time. And while the the second screen in a picture-in-picture overlay is cool for streaming, I'm not sure how that would work if you wanted to capture archival footage. So the perfect solution would be an HDMI mod that could output both screens. Now, Woozle had made one years ago, but it wasn't it was a proof of concept mod and it got video, but it wasn't reworked in a way where you could actually install it inside a DS or something like that. So I, I don't know if he's going to come back around to that project with all the part shortages, who knows if he would even be able to in the short term. But I think if you're looking for original hardware and HDMI out, you're going to have to wait a while and it's probably going to have to be till the part shortage is over. Um, the other options that I mentioned are worth looking into, but I'm not sure if any of them fit your needs exactly. So hopefully I was able to point you in the right direction, but there's no great news about either of those, at least today. 8% Android has a Dreamcast question that involves their Sony 20L5, and I think my answer in this scenario is going to be skewed more towards the 20L5. So if you're a Dreamcast user and you don't have one of these monitors, my answer might not apply to you, but I think I want to answer it this way anyway for, for all the reasons. But the question is that they have a Dreamcast that they want to connect to their multi-sync 20L5 Sony PVM, which is a monitor that can handle from 240p all the way up to HD resolutions. So that means it could handle every resolution that the Dreamcast can output. However, they wanted to try to stick with component video, but, you know, HD Retrovision Dreamcast component cables are plagued by the component shortage now, so who knows when they'll be released. And they were also looking at the option of getting a Sony BKM-129X, which is the expansion card that adds SCART and VGA to the 20L5. Now, if you were considering doing that anyway, that is where I would direct you to go for this, because... That is That just offers so much cool functionality, and if you have a rare and amazing monitor like that, I really think you should probably invest in one, because it does essentially turn it into a 480p VGA monitor, and the SCART input is super handy. I don't know if those are in stock, though, so you're going to have to deal with part shortages and stock issues. So if this... If you were in a scenario where everything was in stock today, I would tell you to get the BKM129X and get like the Retrobit VGA cable and go from there. If you found that you don't need to play any of the 480i games, then you're all set. That's a perfectly good solution. Uh, it adds functionality to your monitor and the cable is fairly cheap and you should be done. However, in that same scenario, if you knew for a fact that you wanted to play in 240p and 480i for those games, I would then say, instead of getting the Retrobit cable, get either the Retro Access or Retro Gaming Cable's SCART cable that has the switch. And that's important, because just a standard Dreamcast SCART cable is 15 kilohertz only, and the one with the switch on it allows 31 kilohertz, so 480p as well. So you could toggle back and forth depending on what game you're using, and you'd be able to utilize the SCAR input of the uh, 20L5. So what to do today is kind of tricky. If either of the main cable manufacturers have that Dreamcast SCAR cable in stock, probably the best thing to do would be to pick that one up and then get a SCART to BNC adapter 
and just kind of use it that way. You could route those through whatever switch you have, or at least you should be able to, and then you would just have to toggle on your PVM between component and RGB, which is kind of annoying because you have to go through the menus and stuff, but it's a pretty good temporary solution. And that SCART to BNC adapter is something that you might use at another point in the future, or you could always resell. So it's not totally a waste of money. You know, it's something that it's a short-term fix that, you know, now you end up with a tool in your toolbox that maybe you would use. So I guess my answer to that is kind of mixed throughout all of that. Now, the other thing that you could do if you, if you were in a slightly different situation is you could look into a cheaper VGA cable and like the HD 15 to SCART, but those are hit with a part shortage as well. So you kind of have to decide what your short-term and long-term solutions for these might be and just try to pick the least worst of, I guess. Um, stinks that we have to work around a part shortage, but it is what it is, and at least it's nobody's fault, really. So, you know, no one's... When I say part shortage, I'm not, like, referring to Nick from HD Retrovision and his damn part shortage. Like, you know, it's, it's a global thing, so we kind of just have to work around it. But, yeah... With your setup, I would strongly recommend considering that 129X and either just getting a SCART cable with a switch or a cheaper VGA cable. And just as a note, when you mentioned sourcing a high quality just VGA to VGA cable, check the ones I linked in my Amazon store because I've bought a couple that worked great that were shielded. Steve from HD Retrovision bought a couple, tested, and even cut one apart and insured it. And unless they've switched out their cable manufacturer, which is possible, you should be able to get a very cheap, I think $9 VGA cable that's fully shielded, but that's VGA to VGA. That's not, uh, you know, Dreamcast to VGA. And if you wanted to use something like the Behar Brothers box, that would totally work. The only, the only downside to using that box is it's another box where the SCART cables contain all the circuitry right in the cable and the switch is right on the Dreamcast side of things. So I'm, I'm certainly not trying to take away from what the Behar brothers have done, but you specifically mentioned like, you know, you would prefer to not add too many boxes to the setup. So that kind of is the opposite of what she said. But I wanted to mention it anyway, just in case, because if that's in stock, that might be your answer. Finney has a question that I do not have the answer to, but maybe somebody listening could provide links to information on a solid answer for this. But they said they'd spilled pretty pure ethanol on a black piece of plastic, and it resulted in a powdery white look that they can't fix. So they wanted to know which alcohols can damage plastic, and are there certain types of plastics, or are there certain scenarios? For me personally, I don't, I've never used alcohol directly on plastic before. Um, I, I use it very generously on, uh, on PCBs and stuff like that, but always in the scenario of, you know, blowing it out with compressed air, not, never water, only isopropyl, and then making sure that it's completely dried out before using it. But I've never really had an issue with plastic because I've never used it on plastic. So if anybody out there has any thoughts on this or especially has links to any studies or anything that's been done, I'd kind of like to know the answer myself. But for me personally, I would just, I mean, I always wash my plastics in soap and water. Obviously, I have all of the electronics removed when I do that, and I've never had a problem with that. I use Goo Gone first, then dish detergent. Uh, the dish detergent is essentially to remove the slimy feel of the Goo Gone, and then I blow it out with compressed air, and then I usually leave it in sunlight to dry, but for like 10 minutes. And this is not like a retro bright scenario. This is just uh, let the heat and the UV rays dry out the rest of the water before I put electronics back in it. 
But that's pretty much what I've always done on plastics. And I have never once had an issue, nor have I ever had anybody tell me any proof that that's a bad thing to do. In fact, most of the experts say that's totally fine to do. So yeah, good question, but it's just not something I've run into because I've never put alcohol on plastics. Richard Webster said they just ordered that RGBS picture adjust device that I reviewed and had a question on that. I think you mean the time harvest box that I looked at, but I'm I'm not 100% sure, but I think that's the one you're talking about because I believe I'd reviewed a few, but I think I only did a really detailed review on one. I don't know, I'll leave the link in the description. But anyway, um, Richard wants to know if they should place that device between the SCART switch and their cross point or between their cross point and their CRT. So I reread the documentation that I had done and the measurements that I had taken And I normally would say, always leave this as the last device in line so that you could use it to adjust anything that's going into your CRT. But the way you're describing this makes me think that you have a, um, some kind of consumer grade CRT with a SCART input and not an RGB monitor. So you would just want to be careful with the voltage. Now it seemed that the voltage was fine when I tested it. So I would just make sure that I'm assuming at the moment you're having a BNC to SCART cable with a resistor on the sync line of the SCART head to drop the voltage before going into your SCART device. So I would just continue to use that so that the voltage sent to the time harvest box isn't too high so that it outputs the correct voltage as well. So I was kind of probably too long of an answer. I probably should have just said, stick it behind the TV and, you know, make sure you use the same cables. But I wanted to elaborate a little bit more as to explain why. So why right before the TV? So anything that you plug into it could be centered if you need to. And why do you need the same cable to make sure that you have low voltage in to have low voltage out? Now, once again, I've never tested it in that scenario, and I said so in the review as well, I only tested a handful of scenarios, but I think it should be fine. But if you have any questions about this stuff, you might wanna, maybe you could email the team, or if you have an oscilloscope, you could certainly test yourself. But my gut says that this should be fine, but I don't wanna be responsible if anything happens. But I think it should be fine, and I have the scope measurements in that to prove it. So I'll leave a link to the original review for anybody interested, but I'm pretty sure that's the best way to hook it up in your scenario. Jake the Naked Snake wants to know why interlaced TV signals, and I guess specifically 480i signals, look better on CRTs than on flat panels. And I'll give you a couple of answers, and then I'll also leave a link to the Wikipedia page for some more details. And any video experts, please bear with me on this one, because the goal is to give a general visualization, not to go into the deep tech of it. But the first answer is that CRTs were designed to draw 480i images, which is why they inherently would look better, whereas flat panels have always been designed to draw progressive scan images. So that's a very super over oversimplification of it. Some more data on why that is, is because interlaced video is drawn half of the frame, so every other line is drawn in one pass, and the other half of the frame, every other line, the opposite of the first one, is drawn in the second pass. And your persistence of vision and the way a CRT works allows that to combine everything into one image, so it looks fine. And because a CRT is based off of an electron gun that's always firing, I think your brain interprets it, interprets it differently because the image is already flickering. It's just flickering a different way between different types of signals. So flat panel TVs 
draw the entire image at once, and they're not designed to draw one after the other. So you would end up with very bad flicker anyway, because it would stand out because there really isn't a flicker. But also, most TVs try to find different ways to blend and combine those interlaced images. And that's why there's so many different ways of deinterlacing, because you could just alternate back and forth, uh, which is Bob deinterlacing, which is what gets you that flicker. And you could do that very quickly, which is what allows you to have things like the open source scan converter and the original retro tanks that are able to have zero lag devices and present the image. And then the other techniques of blending them together all sort of add their own lag in their own way, but some do a very good job. And that's why you could have something like a TV signal or I guess a turn-by-turn -turn RPG or things where lag doesn't matter at all. You could have those look excellent when they're deinterlaced. And that's why something like motion adaptive deinterlacing is pretty cool because it blends two different types of deinterlacing, or I think multiple types together in order to get that. So I think I did a pretty decent job giving the basic overview of it as to why, and also why your eyes perceive it that way. But things definitely get way more complicated when you start to dig into how, how these things work, how video is presented, and why things kind of look the way they do. But one thing I could always say is when it comes to video games, if you ever have the option of playing progressive versus interlaced. So Dreamcast, GameCube, PS2, if they have any options that are 480p, definitely choose those. And if they're retro style games that offer a 240p option, I would recommend that as well. So I talked about this a little bit, and I think it was one of the Rad2x videos, but there are some scenarios which you might want to force like a GameCube game to 240p, but generally speaking, you know, th those games are designed for higher resolution. But if it's something like Gunlord, a really awesome Dreamcast game, you want to make sure that, you know, if you're not running it in 480p, it automatically runs in 240p. And that's inherent to the game, so you don't really have to worry about it. But then maybe you switch over to, like, the Sega Ages collection on the PlayStation 2, and I think you have to manually select 240p for those. And in that scenario, it was a game that was originally 240p, that's now being interlaced to 480i or doubled to 480p, if you're using a CRT or I guess even a scaler, you would want to run that in its 240p mode because you get all of the frame, each frame, and then you could let your scaler or your TV go from there. But I, I think that even looks better on a CRT. Now, I probably just complicated things at the end there, but um, please ask if you want me to clarify anything. And uh, you also said... I uh, hope you're keeping well on your run-up to the holidays and plan on having a little well-earned time off. No, fuck no. I don't get days off. I don't think I've gotten a day off in like three and a half years or something like that. I think the closest thing to a day off I ever had was when I was laid up with the Rona and my head hurt so bad it hurt to think. And like I'd get like an hour or two a day of enough clarity where I'd be able to punch out an article or two and then go go back to laying on the couch all grumpy. So... You know, it's just, you know, it's the nature of the beast, right? If you want to do content creation and stuff like this, you, you either have to get very lucky and just spend all day long milking the algorithm in order to produce content that, you know, gets you hits, or you do the content that, you know, your audience wants. But if you stop for any time period, your revenue drops immediately. And that's, that's any kind of affiliate links. That's any kind of algorithm, you know? So it's uh no, I don't ever get a day off ever. And I love what I do, so it's kind of cool, but 
it's I end up burning myself out quite a lot. You know, it's a couple of months of, you know, working as hard as I can. And then I hit a wall of burnout and then basically just try my hardest to do the bare minimum to keep going until I come out of burnout, which usually takes a few weeks. And then I get a scramble to catch up with everything. And then, you know, I feel good for a couple of months and then burn out again. So I wish there was a different way to do it. And I wish there were, I wish, you know, there, I, I had learned the skills to market myself and do sales better rather than just concentrate on, on nerd stuff. But it is what it is. If I want to just be a nerd, that's what I got to do. Or I could, you know, try to relearn all new marketing skills and promotion skills and stuff like that to try to make more money doing other stuff. But you know, it is what it is. I'm not complaining. I'm just uh, just kind of laughing and addressing the whole, you know, day off thing. But anyway, um, hopefully I, I pointed you in the right direction for 480i stuff. And if you have any other questions you want me to clarify, I'll try my best. But it does get a bit complicated once you cross a certain line of things. Brian Miller has a question that I'm going to split up into two parts just to kind of cover two different scenarios. But the first part that I wanted to address is more general that most people could probably apply to their projects in that what's the difference between SMD and through-hole resistors? And assuming that their specs are the same, the resistance, the, um, the tolerance of that resistance, and the voltage they can handle, performance-wise, there is no difference whatsoever. It's all about functionality and placement. And I could think of an equal amount of scenarios in which using an SMD resistor might be easier than using a through-hole, and you know, vice versa. So as far as the differences between those, it really just comes down to the installation of whatever you're working on, what's required, and you know how it looks and performs. Because one interesting thing about a lot of mods that we do is how it looks can very commonly also correspond with how well the mod is done. So if you had a bunch of through-hole resistors that you bent to fit into SMD spots, not only would it look funny, it's not going to be nearly as solid of a connection as if you just put the SMD component right on the pads that they were designed for. So that's kind of the general answer for that and find out the specs that you need and then just visualize your install to see which is better. Now, the much more specific question is, in the context of the 5.6K pull-ups that could smooth out the color steps in all bypassed Sega Genesis consoles, I would... I would really go through all of the documentation that T did, uh, as well as maybe go back and listen to the podcast that week. But I think T's post is probably all the info you would need. And I would look at all of those pictures. I would look at um, the examples presented and kind of see what fits better and where to install it. Because depending on your model genesis, you might want to put it in a place where you could jam an SMD component between two spots. You might want to put it right on top of the bypass board so you can go right from you know, the, the voltage point to the correct resistor point. There, there's a whole bunch of different ways you could do it. And it really just needs to be the best for that scenario. I'm sorry to skip over the second part. I just don't want to go through the whole, what is the 5.6K pull-up fix, why it's needed when it was already discussed. Uh, no disrespect towards you whatsoever, Brian. I just, in respect of everybody else's time, if you would like that, I'll leave a link to the post. And wh whenever I leave a link to the post, Whatever the next podcast is, is when I would have talked about it. 
The only exception is if you see a post that's uh, posted on a Tuesday, it might be in the next podcast because it might have come in after I already recorded. But um, hopefully that's a decent answer to your question. And, you know, hopefully you didn't think I tried to, to skirt the answer. I just, I know T spent a lot of time on that post and I, I thought it was awesome. So I'd really rather have you go from there. Um, that way, you know, you're getting the best info and not just what I'm remembering off the top of my head. Choirboy wants to know if there's a way to play Xbox Series S games on a composite-only CRT. Uh, Well, I mean, you could get one of those cheap HDMI to composite converters off of Amazon, but it'll definitely output 480i, an interlaced image, and it most likely will have between 2 and 7 frames of lag, depending on which one, and it'll be variable lag, whatever it might be. So it's probably going to be between 2 and 4 frames or something like that. So... If you're just looking to do a fun experiment, those things are cheap and, you know, the CRT doesn't add any lag. So, hey, I mean, maybe it's kind of neat to try out and see what you think. The aspect ratio would either be off or uh, you would obviously be letterboxed then because all of the Series S games are widescreen. But that's certainly one way to do it. Another thing you could do is try to find any kind of HDMI to VGA and then VGA to composite or HDMI to component and component to composite converter. And because you're talking about a TV signal, because all of these modern consoles would be outputting standard TV signals, you might be able to do that, but you would then have to try to find a way to downscale as well. So you would, it would get kind of complicated on how you'd want to pull that off. It would be much easier to try to force 480p onto like a CRT VGA monitor, but yeah, there's really no easy ways to do that. So if you wanted to go through the experiment, I would buy one of those on Amazon and just see what it were or see how it worked and you know see what you think. And it's not really a device you would reuse though. So very often when I give advice like this, I say things like, "Oh yeah, you know, use it until you're bored with it, and then throw it in your toolbox and use it as a tool," but Unless you're just like tinkering, which I do, so no disrespect there, but um, unless you just like tinkering with stuff, that might not be a device you ever use. So I'll leave a link to the one that I bought that, you know, for what it is, definitely props, but um, it's not, it's probably not something where you're going to have the best gaming experience. Oliver Clare is looking to get VGA, RGB SCART, and HDMI all simultaneously outputting from a Sega Dreamcast, and they don't have a DC Digital. So in that scenario, the only thing I could think of at the moment would be like an Extron Crosspoint. And there's some other scenarios. So if you have like an RGB monitor that you could loop one through that, and that's one of your outputs, you could try to do it that way. But generally speaking, if you're going to have more than two outputs, you're going to need something like a matrix switch like the Crosspoint. So for that, I would it would be complicated. You would have to use 480p because 480i might get pretty complicated with the other devices that you would need. But assuming it's 480p, you would go VGA directly into the cross point. You would just need a very cheap VGA to BNC cable. And then the outputs, the VGA would just be an RGB HV cable. RGB SCART, you'd want to use something like the HD15 to SCART. So same thing, BNC to VGA cable into that device. Actually, I have one right here. Uh, into one of these with this uh, HV switch on, and that would combine the sync so that you would get it over SCART. And then you would probably want to get a VGA to HDMI converter, just a, a generic analog digital converter, like uh, like retrorgb.link forward slash cheap DAC. I keep a bunch of the ones I've used there. 
And then that's how you would get HDMI from the third output. So basically one one output of the Dreamcast, probably VGA in, and then the other three out. You could do the same with 480i, but then you wouldn't need a cheap DAC. You would want something that does deinterlacing. And whatever you were connecting the VGA signal to would have to accept a 480i signal, which almost all CRT VGA monitors don't. So I would need a lot more information to help design a layout for this because there's other options and other things that you could do, but it all depends on what your target devices are, what the resolution is. And the one thing you definitely could not do is mix 480i and 480p unless you added a lot of scalers to the image or something like that, or downscalers or something. So if you want to you know, elaborate a bit more on what you're looking to do, I, I would definitely be able to help. But as a general question of how to get three outputs from a Dreamcast, output 480p, put it into a distribution amp or a cross point is probably the easiest. And then rework three of the outputs from VGA to the other signals that you would need. Jason Guffey has a CRT monitor that has some brightness issues, and they're looking for any tips or any ways that they could extend the life of it. And the first thing that I would do in this scenario is double and triple check some troubleshooting steps. So if you've turned the brightness and contrast all the way up, and it's still just bright enough, or maybe even just a hair too dim, but otherwise works perfectly, it might be at the end of its life. But if you do that and you, you know, you knock on the side a little bit, and I know people who are young are going to laugh at me for saying that, but anybody that grew up in the 80s and 90s is smiling right now. But yes, seriously, if you're using it and you give it a light whack on the side and everything's still totally fine, nothing changes, it's just too dim, it might be at the end of its life. And I'll get, I'll come back to that in a second. However, if you're at a spot where you turn the brightness up and it's way too bright, but uh, when you bring it back down to a normal level, you still have brightness issues like a flicker or a pulse or something like that. That could be a sign of a bunch of other things and your CRT could be completely and totally fixable. And then you would just want to talk to any one of the experts about what to do in that scenario and how to troubleshoot. And of course, if you're going to take the back off of it, please be safe because I don't want anybody dying working on CRTs. But generally speaking, if you're at the spot where the CRT seems to be performing totally fine, it's just dim it's on its last leg, and then you have a decision to make. And I've been in this uh, this scenario and situation a few times, and I'm confident I did the right thing, even though the outcome wasn't always what I had hoped. But here's basically the thing that you could do. You could just say, I love this monitor, and it's just a little dim, everything else is fine, so I'm going to use it as is, knowing that it's probably dying. And hey, maybe I'll only use this one at night when I could turn the lights down so it's not so bright in the room, so it looks fine anyway. If that's the case, you could get years out of this, especially if it's not something you're using 24-7 like a standard PC monitor. If you're only turning it on while you're gaming, that thing could last a very, very long time. But if you're in a scenario like I've been in a few times where something else is wrong. So it's everything I just described, but not only is it dim, red is also much more dim than the rest of them or something like that, where you just know it's on its last leg. Or if it's one of those things where it's just too dim and you really can't even use it in a dark room, you could try CRT rejuvenation. Most of the time I've tried it, the monitor's dead. 
but I've always been confident in the decision because I kind of knew this monitor was definitely going to die, especially the one where not only was it all dim, but one of the colors was, was off too. It was one of those scenarios where it's like, I'm pretty sure this CRT is dead and needs to be replaced and there's nothing I could do to fix it. But hey, let me cross my fingers and hope it works. And I have seen that work. I have seen people run a CRT rejuvenation and it's a bit brighter and it's lasted a long time and everything's cool, but the more likely scenario is that you'll completely kill the tube and then that's it. So you got to make a decision on when you want to do something like that. And, you know, like I said, I've killed a couple of tubes, but I've been confident that that was the right move because the alternatives were to mess around with a monitor that probably had months left, not years, of not so great use. And I wasn't about to dump a ton of time and money into recapping the entire thing and calibrating it and trying to bring it back that way, knowing that the tube was probably done. So I don't, you know, I didn't like that it died, but I still thought that I made the right decision because I saved a ton of time and money on something that was, you know, a project that wouldn't have gone through anyway. But that's a decision you got to make. I mean, they're your monitors. If you really want to go around and CRT rejuvenate all of them, knowing that some of them are probably fine and might die because as a result, that's up to you. I'm not picking on you, Jason, by the way. I meant you as like the general you, <laughs> like you, the CRT owner could choose to do that. But for me personally, I would kind of make a decision based on, you know, the total what you're thinking of. And I'm actually, I just picked up two VGA monitors. I'm going to do a live stream of those soon. I've just been so behind. Just just from going to visit Steve for two days has knocked me like a week behind to try to catch up. But I, I really want to do a live stream just checking those out. And I think one of them is exactly at that spot where the brightness and contrast have to be all the way up. But it looks awesome. So, uh, you know, I'm probably going to leave that one the heck alone and never touch it. And in the amount that I would use it, that'll probably last longer than me. However, if it was too dim or if it's a scenario in which I needed to use it a lot, like if I were going to, to bring it to Arcade Brooklyn, who would probably use that daily, then I would either try to repair it or, or find a different use for it. So totally going to be up to you on this one, but hopefully I added some perspective and, and kind of gave some things that, to try. You mentioned of a program that you could use to dial in some settings, but I mean, you're nitpicking at this point. Once again, I mean that respectfully, because if the bottom line is if you turn the brightness and contrast all the way up and it's not bright enough, eh, I mean, you could try to work around that, but it still comes down to the whole, how long is this thing going to last? And do you really want a chance messing with anything if it's on its last leg? Well, that's it for this time. Hopefully these came out okay. I haven't been feeling so well the past few days, so hopefully I was able to still uh, put everything I could into it. But if not, my apologies, and I'll try to bounce back and get better next week. And I did also want to politely remind everybody that I don't read any of these Q&A pages until the day I go to shoot them, because I love having fresh answers as they pop into my head. And while sometimes I probably would have been better off uh, you know, researching the answer first. I love doing these conversation style and I love just talking to you all as if I was hanging out at a coffee shop or a bar with you. Uh, you know, I like the more personal aspect and I think it's a little bit more fun. So there were a few things this week where, uh, you know, people had responded to what I had talked about last week, but I didn't read them until today. So no disrespect. Uh, it has nothing to do with you or your question. It's just the whole, I love coming into these fresh, not knowing what I'm getting myself into. And if you're new to these Q and A's and you have any questions that you want, 
please ask your question wherever it is that you support in the latest Q&A post. Because the way the services work, it's kind of tough to figure out what's a new question on an old post. Plus, I, I really just like scrolling through in real time like I have been. So any question at all, feel free to fire away. And if I don't answer it, it's always a mistake. Um, it's either the question came in after I recorded the Q&A or something happened in post. So just DM me if you need anything or uh, just post the question in the next one and I will get to it next week. So thank you all very much. Uh, I really appreciate your support. It's what's keeping all of these things going. So thanks again. and I'll see you next week.